You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Danae Shell, a veteran startup employee about to become a founder for the first time. Uh, a native Tennessean, she's a programmer turned marketer who has been part of the Scottish tech scene for 15 years, which is possibly longer than me, actually. You were obviously an early starter, um, working at scale-ups Barry and Hibbert and Free Agent before their successful exits, and most recently was Chief Marketing Officer at CareSourcer, scaling their marketing strategy and building a team to help solve one of the UK's biggest societal issues. So welcome to the podcast, Danny. Thank you very much. So could you give us a quick overview, so we've got time for the rest of the podcast, mm. um, of your startup journey to this point and why you're now taking the plunge as a founder rather than heading for a well-paid, cushy corporate job? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good, it's a good question, actually. <laughs> so yeah, so I think... Um, I didn't actually intend to work in tech when I first got started. I did a political science degree, but I kept, like, technology just kept kind of coming up in my university career. I was, like, one of those such early web developers that I was using spacer pixels to, like, get the design right. It was old school. And then I ended up kind of teaching technology while I was there. And then I got really interested in, like... Um, legal tech or like IP law because I was doing political science and so I ended up at Napier University for an internship because they had a teledemocracy center which was building the UK's first or the Scottish Parliament's first e-petitioning system so I got into that and suddenly I was in tech and so then I kind of got the bug managed to persuade them to give me a full-time job after the internship came back to Scotland permanently um, at that point well to do my graduate degree and then permanently and then started you know doing the dance that you do in tech where people say oh I'm starting this thing over here do you want to come and join me and then you kind of drift away from one company and then go into another one and suddenly they're bought by another company and then they're bought by another company and yeah I've, I've seen a lot of exits actually a lot of exits and a lot of funding rounds and things. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you're lucky? <laughs> you're yeah. a lucky uh, omen to have in a startup? <laughs> well I certainly hope so now that I'm doing it myself actually yeah yeah and I guess it's because I saw so many different stages of so many different companies and a lot of the transition stages that I got a really good education and free agent in particular the founders of free agent are so fantastically transparent about the decisions that they're making and I really really think that free agent is just like a little training ground for startup executives because they were so great about explaining their reasoning and that really gave me the the kind of thinking like I want to do this and so when I joined CareSourcer I joined it really looking to build up that experience more and to help them um, kind of understand that kind of early stage that I've been through before and then when I left there, it just felt like, actually, there, there's no good time and you'd never know enough. But I think I'd seen enough of the industry to think, actually, I, I think I can do just as well as anybody else at this point. So, yeah, let's give it a shot. Interesting. You're coming into your own, own startup. I'm, I'm quite curious about what you're saying about free agent, about the, the transparency from the founders being mm. so important. It, mm. It's something that... I've always done it, but this time bringing into this startup, mm. my co-founders and I have got 
commitment to kind of radical transparency, which mm. you sort of worry sometimes that you're you're exposing a level of reality to mm. your team that yeah. they may not be as equipped to know how to process that. We always try to make it kind of clear this is yeah, this is stressful, but this is normal. We're handling it and we're communicating it and we're sharing it with you so you know there's no secrets. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think Ed did a really good job of contextualizing stuff. So every month, the um, free agent, ever since I joined him before, would um, have basically a big slide that showed how much was in the bank, what our plans were, how we were doing against that plan, um, generally what the board had said they would show us the slides they would present the same slides that they had presented to the board and they would say what you know what the kind of conversations had been about and then you know what they were thinking about at the moment and I think he did a very good job of what I now recognize as contextualizing mm-hmm. which is saying like he would say okay this is normal we're at this stage and therefore this is a normal problem for us to have or this is a normal question for us to be asking ourselves at this stage of the company and I think now that I've kind of been through a couple more startups since then, I think that is actually the key is you want to be, you don't want to leak stress. And I talk mm-hmm. a lot about leaking. Yeah. And you, you don't want to leak stress, but what you do want to be is honest because everyone that you're working for is really smart or working for you is really smart. Like they get it. They see everything. Oh, absolutely. And they'll fill the void if you don't give it to them. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you, if you contextualize and say, actually, none of us know the answers because if we did, we would all be either billionaires or we would be working in a bank because that's the kind of environment where you might know all the answers. But because none of us know the answers, we're all figuring this out together. And here's what's important to making sure that we do that together. But don't worry, I'm looking ahead. I'm thinking about this. So I think it's that consistency yep. of behavior alongside the inconsistency of just what happens around you. And that's really interesting because I mean, obviously, I've got a co-founding team of three, including mm. me this time. But as CEO, I see my my role this time being way smaller than it was. And I think that's amazing because literally my job is to spend my whole time educating and evangelizing the mission Mm. internally and externally. Why are we doing what we're doing? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And how are we in relation to that plan? And that is pretty much all I do. I mean, you know, I'm doing other functional stuff, but on the whole... That's pretty much all my job. And it's key. It's so key. You're, it's you're the bit of context. my job I didn't really get to do enough before yeah. because I was too busy running operations and finance and product and all of those kind of things. It is feeling like this is a grown-up startup mm. with a grown-up founding team. And I think that radical transparency and that being deliberate about everything is part of that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I so think telling the story is so important. Absolutely. Anything, and I'm not no, I'm not asking you to name names here, but anything that you are not going to do in your startup under any circumstances, based on observation, theory, or possibly experience. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few things that Kate, my co-founder, and I, Kate Ho, have probably talked about and saying, okay, let's not do it this way. Um, we're definitely going to move outside of our friend network for our initial hires to try and be as inclusive and open that kind of top of the funnel talent opportunity as much as we possibly can. We're not at the hiring stage, but we've already kind of set that groundwork because it's so easy to just turn to who you know and what you know, but that's not how you get a diverse team. Absolutely. And we want to be really clear about that. We um, will not be using OKRs to begin with. (laughs) 
<laughs> Honestly, this is just poetry. You can bring it all on. <laughs> I read a thing this morning, actually, that explicated it so well. Like, the thing about learning from Google and all those other startups, or they're not startups, that's the thing. Yeah. The thing about learning from they them... They are enterprises that have been at this for 15 years. Yeah, like, how did they run their goal setting when they had three people? Because that's yes. the stage yeah. that you should actually be looking at. And and the thing that I passionately rail on about, and I'm like, it, it's so important to me, is we are in, and I talked about it when I was just at Turing, we are in a VUCA environment. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Like, we are not in a planable environment. As much as we all wish that that was still the world that we lived in, I mean, now, right now, we definitely know that's not the yep. world that we live in. And so you have to innovate your way out of that step by step. Like, you know, the Lean Startup talks about it. And then what I was talking about was talking about it in terms of people as well and the skill set that you need mm-hmm. to actually innovate out of that because it's not follow me, everyone, I know exactly the thing to do kind of people. It's And some people hate, like some people, you know, I have employed people over the years. That is not the environment that they can cope with that they want, that yeah. that, that they are capable or willing or inspired to be productive in absolutely i mean it's and it's no surprise because when i was doing research for my talk i looked into how do humans like deal with uncertainty and the answer is very very badly <laughs> like we, <laughs> we absolutely hate and of course we do like we hate uncertainty and the analogy that i found that i thought explicated it really well is we would rather go into something knowing that it was definitely going to fail you would feel more comfortable with that than having a 50 50 shot of it failing or not failing because the uns- at least you'd know. I've always thought that my risk settings were completely off. Mm. Like, they're not normal. Yeah. And it might be that that's, that's one of the things that makes people comfortable in a startup. But it doesn't mean that they all have to be, I think, people like you and me, who are a lot more kind of outgoing and dynamic. Like, I've also met some really consistent people who can thrive in that kind of environment. Oh, both yeah. of my co-founders. Like, I live on the ceiling and they hold a rope each side and try to pull me down occasionally. Yeah. But it doesn't usually work. But, you know, they're both quiet, introvert, deliberate, consistent yeah. people mm-hmm. who follow through on my, let's go to the moon! Yeah, and actually, it's on that Tuesday. follow... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go to the moon in 24 hours. <laughs> But it's that, it's that consistency, that tying down, that I think actually is one of the most successful, successful ways to innovate through that uncertainty and that volatility. It's, it's, and I think right now we think, oh, we have this dynamic environment. We need to fill our startups with dynamic people in order to match that. And it's like, no, no, find consistent people who like this kind of uncertainty and, and use them to pin down people like you and me. You know, we come in, we create the energy, and then they come in afterwards and they make sure that this stuff actually happens. It's, mm. it's a lovely balance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just a match and a firelighter. Yeah. That's a useful thing, but it kind of needs follow through for that to be helpful in any way. And possibly a fire extinguisher somewhere <laughs> yes. for when it all gets out of hand. Well, have you done Strength Finder before? Yeah, I like Strength Finder. Yeah. Although this time in this company, partly because uh, our accelerator was paying... Uh, we did the Insights one, oh, yes. which I really liked. Mm, yeah. I don't know if I can afford it, unless somebody from Insights is going to bring out a startup package, mm. which would be great. But yeah, I do like the start Strength Finders, which uh, for anybody that's not familiar with that, it's, it's a Gallup kind of, not exactly personality testing. It's kind of like what it says on the tin. It mm. looks for your strengths. The only thing I would say against Strength Finders is everybody has strengths, including your psychopaths, and your narcissists. And in retrospect, mm. I have seen both a psychopath and a narcissist's 
strength finders. Oh, interesting. And their strengths are very interesting, mm. but it would have been really helpful on the strength finder to have, by the way, they're a psychopath. <laughs> That, yeah, that would be quite helpful, actually. And I think in life that would be quite helpful if there was some kind of, like, alarm system. Yeah, I mean, there is the psychopath test, um, but, you know, it's quite hard to do that at an interview stage. Oh, would so, you yeah. mind taking the psychopath test for me? <laughs> you know what? I honestly wouldn't be surprised if some startup sprung that on someone somewhere. But, but the You'd thing is... get hired. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> well, the reason I love it so much is when I was managing a bigger team, what I found was that you could match people's strengths with their bottom three, and so you could say, actually, you two probably haven't worked very well together. You don't know each other very well because your strengths are so opposite. But look, you are an activator and you are a, I can't remember the one that's like, a, you are consistent. Uh-huh. And so actually all you need is her to get you started yeah. and then you can do the follow-up and vice versa. Yeah. And it gave them a language to understand each other that really changed a few relationships and some teams that I've run. Yeah, we had a spreadsheet that had everybody's top and bottom ones on yeah. and you could look at it. But I mean, there were times when I would look at the strength of the team and go, oh my goodness, you know, we're completely missing. Mm-hmm. We're completely missing in the executive or the activator or the, you know, the the energetic doing functions yeah we're completely stacked with learners and analysts as you would expect often in data tech companies Mm. but it's actually you know i was so happy when we got somebody who was like competitive was like one of their ones because they were so useful in a team of Mm. learners and analysts to actually have somebody come in and kind of put an edge on that totally it really makes a difference that balance like when i hire now like the first hire that I'm going to make in any startup that Kate and I have with Vala is someone who is way more consistent and like someone to pull pull us both down because we know where we are. And then when you can start to round off that team, you can see the benefits immediately. Mm. Like they having people throwing the cat amongst the pigeons and then having someone else do the cleanup and having all these like emotionally intelligent people to yeah, ask the right questions. I think it's back in the day really liked the Belbin one. Oh, um, that one is quite interesting. You have to have observers and you do an activity and everything. They they have a group that's the finisher completer. Mm. It's like, oh. There's only one type you need in the group, which mm. is the kind I am and I suspect you are, which is called a plant. Not because you are like a plant uh, with a foliage kind of thing but because actually if there's not one in the group they have to plant one in Uh, because otherwise nothing happens it's the instigator essentially Mm -hmm. so it sounds like you're very wisely and very deliberately moving away from the thought of hey let's do this with our mates and a few people that we know Mm. and I I think that is such an important thing to do any other hard learned lessons that you've discovered about people and culture that you are going to endeavor to avoid and and if you don't bring this up i'm going to come back to the rock stars because you made some interesting points about that so one thing that i've seen go very well and go very badly is lack of thinking about the executive team as your first team. So um, Maria Gutierrez, she brought in Patrick Lencioni's work into Free Agent, and they already had a great executive team, but I think she really brought a framework to them. And then they talked to us in their transparency about that framework, and it was so helpful. And the basic premise is that you might be the head of marketing, but your first team is your executive team. You might be the, um, you know, like CTO or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But that executive relationship and the ability for you to communicate with each other with trust and then go out from there 
is everything. And, and what I often said at CareSourcer when I was talking to them about Lencioni's work when I introduced it was if we don't work, they don't work. So it's like yeah. that relationship is so fundamental because otherwise you silo, you end up using your teams kind of almost against the other person, even without realizing it because you have differing kind of conflicts. That disagree and commit is so mm-hmm. important in that executive oh, yeah. team. Um, do you want to summarize that? We're, we're operating on disagree and commit, and I think it'd be really useful for the listeners that are not familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically what it says on the tin. It's saying, okay, well, you might get into a room and you might all passionately disagree about the way that you're going to move forward. But once you've agreed to something, you're going to get completely behind that. And it's going to be as if you never disagreed at all. You're just going to you're going to get behind it, you're going to commit to it, and your team isn't going to find out that you never agreed with it. You know, it's not, you're not going to leak that uncertainty mm-hmm. because otherwise your team will know it. They, honestly, I think they can smell it. Like, yeah, <laughs> and then as soon as that uncertainty leaks or that distrust leaks, then, then you get favoritism kick in. Mm-hmm. Then you get people trying to play one founder off against another founder mm-hmm. or one executive off against another executive. Or just not knowing what or, to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's incredible. I mean, literally, that starts at employee one. Mm. I mean, we've already, as co-founding team of three, who've done six months as just us, Mm -hmm. you know, in this crazy, happy three-way marriage. Yeah. We really have had to be deliberate now about how we communicate out Mm. and and the messages that we send and how we make sure that we push out the ability to make decisions without running back to mummy, daddy, or other daddy. Yeah, totally. Because, <laughs> like, that doesn't help anybody. But it's so easy to create that. It's, it, like, it, it is the default. It is only with vigilance and a lot of, as you say, deliberate work that you wouldn't create that. And I really like, have you ever used Lencioni's tactical meeting agenda? No, I haven't. It's fantastic. So it's basically like a one page kind of, um, if you have like a a regular meeting of managers, regular meeting of execs, any regular meeting is really helpful. And so you cover off the quick points, you cover off the agenda items. And then at the end, there's a a section for cascading messages. Mm -hmm. So you agree in the meeting, based on everything that we've agreed right now, what are the messages that we're going to tell everyone else outside of this room about what we just agreed? So what is what is the thing that we are now as a unit going to project because that unity is so important for mm-hmm. everyone else to not be confused about who am I going to make angry? Like if I if I please Danae, will Kate be cross? Because I know she doesn't really like that project or, you know, that kind yep. of stuff. So I, th- I think that's a really useful framework to use. And it's so um, alien to most employees and, and most founders. But if you've come from a non-startup environment... Mm. Mm. into a world that operates like that it it's so alien because this trust this communication this transparency this kind of really you know you you kind of always assume it's corporates that read the management theory and read the books but the only people i ever sit and have a conversation with where we all quote authors and books and methodologies at each other is startups frankly (laughs) and i wonder why that is because i think it's because it's so dire and so existential when you get it wrong it's so true the con the the risks are so much higher and the consequences are so much worse aren't they yeah yeah there's no comfort here yeah Yeah. i mean if you're in a large corporation and stuff happens that you are not involved in the decision making whereas in this kind of environment as a founder every single person is a vast cash investment yeah absolutely. every single person is a vast cultural investment and if you get it wrong mm. 
the consequences are huge. I mean, I only heard this after I'd got it wrong and the consequences were huge <laughs> and um, I was one of many people suffering consequences. But I heard this phrase, you know, culture is the worst behaviour you're prepared to tolerate. Absolutely. God, yes. <laughs> and, you know, what? I always, if I'd heard that before, what I probably would have thought about was my own behaviour. Mm. But what you experience as a founder, particularly once you've raised money, and mm. I think this is where it gets really interesting, you might have had these nice values, you might have been quite deliberate about this, is suddenly you've got behaviour going on at a senior level or even above you because yeah. everybody thinks the founder is at the top of the tree and they're not. No. Um, <laughs> you've got bad behaviour going on mm. and your team observe this. And they lose respect for you if you don't do something about it. That's that's the other thing that I've really observed. Mm. And I guess there was one thing that I vowed never to do again, but it felt so obvious that I didn't think about it. It's um, no genius assholes. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I bought the no asshole rule and I kind of like read the first chapter of it. It's like, you know why I've lived this. Like, yeah. I get it. No assholes. Never again. I won't do that. I don't need to read the rest of this yeah. book. <laughs> it's, I, I actually think it's really hard for some companies. It's really hard to not accidentally hire an asshole because often they're, they bring a lot of certainty. They bring a lot of investor confidence. They bring, they, they bring a lot on paper and it's only when you get them into your company that they really start to see the rot that kind of happens. Yeah. I just wrote a blog post on this called Founders, You Don't Need Adult Supervision. And adult supervision I use interchangeably for asshole. Yeah. You know, it's this person that looks great on paper, mm-hmm. They, but they've never been in your stage of business. Yeah. They've never lived through this stuff. They don't actually bring anything practical, but they somehow managed to convince you and everybody else in the immediate term that they're so much more competent than you. And you get the founders doubt themselves, the te- like this toxic culture thing instantly, mm-hmm. and for a while at least, they still have the investor and the board yeah. confidence. It's really dangerous. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... Nobody, like this is the thing that I keep going on about, nobody really knows what they're doing. Some of us have more experience than other people, but fundamentally we are all just, you know, two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl. Like, you know, there's nothing, (laughs) there is no certainty out there anymore. And there are people who will guide you and help you. And those people are absolutely invaluable. And there are people who have done some of this before. But in the end, like if you lose confidence in yourself and your own ability to just say, you know what, I'm just going to go to look at this next step and then I'm going to look at the step beyond that. If you let a board or investors or some, you know, like rock star who they persuade you to come in or you think you need, if you let them take away your agency and your power, you've already lost the game. Yep. When actually, like, we're fine. Yeah. Like, we're all intelligent human beings. Like, we're fine. Uh, I did an English degree, so I'm, I'm big into my Shakespeare. And when I came out of uh, when I came out of Clear Returns, where I learned the hard way, all this stuff, I mean, it literally, you know, I, you know, I allowed or didn't fight toxic behavior. I was the one that paid the consequence of that, but so did the whole company, yeah. everybody in it. Um, but I kind of had rather poetically sort of come out of that thinking I was Desdemona in Othello. <laughs> And then I realized I was King Lear (laughs) and I'd like blithely given my kingdom away. You know, I'd given my control and my agency away. Yes. When the times were good and there was, didn't seem to be a risk to that. I was trying to be a good grown up CEO founder who was comfortable in letting go of some of the control. Mm. 
you know, these days I'm not so comfortable with that whole letting go of the control thing. <laughs> I can imagine, especially actually. Especially <laughs> not of culture, especially not of people and hiring and you who have... we are and what our values are. In fact, I kind of feel like that's pretty much my only job. You can't outsource that. Like, it comes... Like, I've seen people try to outsource that. They say, you're good at the people side. You look after the people, and I'll just focus on whatever I'm good at, whether it's the, the tech or the commercials or whatever it is. And, it, and it's a fundamental misunderstanding of us as human beings because, like, you can't give any one person responsibility for building a culture and say, well, you're good at talking to people. You take care of it. It, it comes... The responsibility lies in those founders. And if they absolve themselves of that responsibility even a little bit, that is the beginning of a bad culture starting. It, it, and I have seen that one over yep. and over and over. And it's so dangerous. Like, and, I, and often it's a woman that they try and hand oh, yeah. culture over to. Yeah, or I hate this when you see the executive team and essentially every single time the only woman on the executive team is handed marketing and or people mm. or both. Yeah, yeah absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or D&I as well, all the diversity oh, yeah, and inclusion yeah. stuff. And it, it, it just shows a really, really kind of sad lack of understanding that we're all people like it's like it's just us interacting with everyone else and mm. if if you're not taking it I always say if you're not doing the work yourself as a founder to be deliberate about what you're trying to build and everything else and it's hard because at the same time you're trying to negotiate a deal or find product market fit or mm. you know land that investor what everything else is but that culture is everything it it really is it's, yeah i'm so passionate about yeah. it <laughs> and i think um founders ceos they there there are points as the business grow where they're at particular risk of compromising mm. their values and they're at risk of compromising their their cultural way and i think investment is one of those points landing a big deal is another but investment particularly I mean you've obviously seen different stages of deals including the exit does money <laughs> cause more problems than itself <laughs> I think it's really about the structure of the money I've been talking to quite a few people about this when deciding what I'd like to do with Vala and it I think it can absolutely cause more problems than it ever solved and in some and in other cases I think it is the key that unlocks everything and it's wonderful and I think it's again about who you're taking the money from the expectations that they have so as a very like someone told me recently once you take VC money the clock has started so you need to be really careful about when you want that clock to start in terms of okay they've got like a what, like a 10-year return or a five-year mm -hmm. return they're looking yeah. for on that fund. And, and it so depends where they in the, they are in their fund cycle when they invest in you. So if they've only got four years you've got four left years. in that fund cycle, you've got four years, regardless of your plan. Well, yes. you've got three, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And you, like, you just signed up for that clock. And maybe a lot of people don't know that they just signed up for that clock, but then suddenly they're getting a lot of pressure from the investors yeah. and they're, they're just asking, you know, well, why is that? So taking money... Taking VC money, for example, before you have product market fit is not something I'm going to do. I'm not going to do that either. Yeah. Um, I, I have said this quite deliberately. We are really, really trying to raise through um, patient debt, grants, revenue until we have product market fit. Yeah. And until we have commercially validated our key market segments. Yeah. Because if we raise investment... I would even include like certain type of angel investment in this, but if we raise VC or angel investment before that point, 
our ability to change our mind, our ability to go, we were wrong, mm-hmm. our ability to iterate through is really taken away. We are going to, as a founding team, for as long as possible, maintain control over the decision making that allows us to dictate product strategy and market segments. Yeah, I cannot agree more. I, I think the one of the key lessons that I've taken away from my experience so far is for the love of God, do not take scale up money until you're ready to actually scale and you know in your bones that you're ready to actually scale because as soon as that scale pressure comes, if you are in any way still trying to iterate through something before scaling, you're just going to, you're just creating an ulcer <laughs> for oh, you and your team. you're creating worse than that. I mean, like, I came to the realization too late, mm. three investment rounds in, that we did not have product market fit. And then I went into a board meeting and basically said, I have discovered we do not have product market fit. Yeah. Our market is not what I thought it was. Our whole concept behind what we can sell for the price we were intending to sell it at to the people we were intending to sell it at has been devalidated, whatever the, yeah. unvalidated, whatever the term is. We need to pivot. We need to go back to what we have and we need to put this together in another way. I called it, in my mind, my back me or sack me plan. Like, yeah. they did not back me. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just, like, you know, at the time, I, it was awful. I, mm. I, I went home from this meeting. I wished my plane would fall out of the sky because it just felt easier than having to go back into the office tomorrow and figure out how the hell I sorted this problem out when my board were against me, my investors were against me, and there wasn't anything I could do to get out of this because the thing we needed to do was change strategy, yeah. except I wasn't allowed. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean... That's where the money makes things hard, right? That's yeah. where accidentally... And, and you, I don't think you often know when you're taking the money, which is why it's scarier. I mean, you thought you had product market fit and you didn't. Absolutely. And, and founders always do. We have to be optimistic, right? Mm. If, if we were not these engines of optimism... If we can't delude ourselves, then we can't delude anybody else. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's it's a really <laughs> delicate balance where you've got to, at the same time, be optimistic. I do, I really want to, with Vala, I really want to abide by that definition of product market fit, was, which is if you have to ask, then you don't have it. I said that, I think, yeah. last week. Um, if you're asking yourself, do I have product market fit, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't have time to ask because the phone is endlessly ringing, you've got emails coming in from everywhere, people want you to deliver this damn thing, you know, the customer and the market is coming to you yeah. and the wheels are falling off every, everything because you can't actually operationalize your ability to deliver, mm. then you have it. Oh, actually, that's reminded me of something else that I do not want to do starting with Vala. It's not a cultural issue, but it's a really important one. I don't want to start with Google Ads. Yeah, well, you can't really get out of that anymore, can you? <laughs> the unit economics of a business built on paid search yeah, do not work. Not for a startup, not yeah. for any business, except possibly Google. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and even anybody who thinks they're going to build that kind of business and flog themselves to Google are going to find that they need to go read up about what's happened with some of those acquisitions. Yeah, it's just the unit economics just do not yeah. make sense. So, yeah. So... Talk about a little bit about these rock stars. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yes. So the talk I just gave was to stop recruiting for rock stars because it's the skills that you really want um, are not rock star skills. So, for example, when we hire right now, we're often looking for someone with confidence. We're looking someone for someone with a lot of vision. So 
vision, for example, so many job ads say, you know, we're looking for someone who can communicate our vision and our mission and they're a visionary. So they either said it or they communicate it. And that's fine, but a vision doesn't change very Mm -hmm. much. And so, you know, what you're basically asking for is a parrot, someone who can just keep, and, and it is important. It is important to keep, as you said, you know, your job is to communicate that story and keep telling that story. And we just, we need to kind of cascade that. But context, the communication of context is so much more valuable for me. When I see, when you think about that volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity that we're all operating within, that means that our context is changing all the time. And so we're making a decision based on one context that could be different in a month's time. Mm -hmm. But we're still, you know, we've already filled up our backlog. We've already, you know, written the spec. And then it takes someone putting their hand up and saying, does this still make sense? Because you know how we did that deal, but then that deal didn't actually happen that way. And then everybody's like, oh, oh, crap. (laughs) That is context resetting. And actually, I found when I was at CareSourcer, because it was, you know, a relatively early stage company, lots of growth, lots of change. I found that I was resetting context sometimes like once a fortnight or Mm -hmm. something like that. And if you're not resetting that context, you're making bad old decisions. Yep. So that, to me, is a much more valuable skill than someone who can stand up and say the same thing in different ways. And it's quite interesting how that balance of people that you need at different phases. I think we often underestimate how many doers we need Mm. relative to how many managers, visionaries and tellers i mean really yeah your founding team tend to have that bit nailed like the whole telling and visioning (laughs) what you tend to lack in an early stale company i think even in a scale-up you lack doers really excellent consistent (laughs) emotionally vulnerable doers who are able to work in a team who are able to collaborate with each other who are able to go in and say actually you know what, this team doesn't really understand what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to go have a meeting with them and just sit down and we're going to work it out together. There's this fantastic book called The Art of Action that's um, all about how to iterate your operational processes through that VUCA environment. And they say the leadership team just sets the why, but they don't set the how. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you need people who are very good at defining the how. Yeah. And that's those doers who yeah. aren't they're, they're not classed as rock stars. They, they probably can't get up and do an off-the-cuff five-minute talk in front of the company. They're probably going to be really, really uncomfortable if you g- drag them into a meeting at the last minute and say, could you just talk through that idea again? Like, yeah. <laughs> these, aren't, these are not those people, but these people are so valuable and so essential to the way that startups actually have to run, not the way that we could all run, wish that we could all run them in our heads. It's interesting. So before we wrap up, perhaps you could um, have think about if there's anything that you just won't bother to do mm. in this startup. Like, you know, I, I have been saying, I mean, I will break this rule, but I've been saying for a while, like, I feel like I've reached my day in Judy Dench moment. I'm really not going to be out there doing show pitching. Oh, like, just, you know, if I have to go pitch to get some serious money, mm. fair enough. But if I never have to pitch again, I'm going to be kind of like, I don't know. I'm sure Helen Mirren and Dame Judy Dench and Meryl Streep don't have to audition anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to send my Oscar in my place for show pitching. Is there anything that you kind of think, oh, I'm just going to skip that bit? That's a good question. I haven't thought about it that way. I guess because the founder role is new to me. So definitely with that, I don't know 
what isn't worth the time and what is worth the time now. I'm very much in that say yes to everything kind of stage until you kind of filter out what doesn't actually seem to be worth your time. And because I have a co-founder, I have the luxury of being able to be more the person that does all the, the chatting to people, the networking. Mm-hmm. And so right now I'm meeting everyone because I don't know where my next opportunity is going to come from. But in terms of like the operations of the company, we might not bother with office space. Mm-hmm. We're not really going to bother with any kind of, you know what? We haven't bothered with business cards. We haven't we haven't bothered with anything that makes you look like a real business. Like my Twitter bio right now is co-founder and CEO of Vala, a company so new it doesn't have a Twitter handle yet. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, we worked full time. Three of us worked full time on Vistaworks for six months before we founded the company. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't even registered our company for we, the same reason. We did it. We registered and launched in first of April this year. Yeah. But we started work pretty much full time in October. Yeah. And at every point in that, we almost ran kind of quarterly. That the at the end of this quarter, we will decide if mm. this deserves to live for another quarter. Yeah. We didn't do any of the legals, but what we had, we had a working agreement, right? Mm. We had a working agreement that if somebody walked away, mm-hmm. the other, whoever was left kept the company. Like if you walked away, you didn't have a claim in three years time on the IP. Yeah. You didn't have a claim that this was your idea. We worked together, mm-hmm. but if you're out, you're out. Yeah. And we had that as a working agreement because I think that's quite important. And it, it just it just let us all get to know each other mm. and work quite uh, seriously, but also in, in a no-risk kind of way. If somebody at any point had a way better offer, they, they, would, they could have gotten out of that without having any obligations back to the company. But when we got to the point that we'd validated it, mm. we were happy we'd built rough tech ourselves that worked. Mm. We stood up and did a pitch um, at, you know, at, at a show pitch thing but with all the right people in the room and it went down well and then we were like okay this is a goer and yeah. now we all commit yeah. and we did our shareholding agreement we hired staff pretty much immediately mm. um but yeah it's not rushing into it it's being deliberate yeah and but it's like not waste. like we still haven't spent a penny on offices i mean i do have business cards because i kind of like them but not a lot else and i, I think it, i think that's again back to that you know, almost like a self-confidence thing where it's like in order to be a real business, I have to go through the motions of what a real business looked like 50 years ago and even 20 years ago. Whereas I think having the confidence for me, the confidence that I'm trying to remind myself of right now is I don't know exactly what this is. I know the problem that I'm trying to solve. We're working on the tech side right now. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm not going to rush myself into anything that's going to tie me down in any way until I'm ready to make that commitment and that next step. And that's, again, how you innovate through uncertainty. You you, you surf. You don't anchor. <laughs> and that's how you keep the risk manageable to yourself. Yeah. I mean, if, if on very day one of your concept, you were like, oh my gosh, I'm really not completely sure we're going to be able to IPO this in NASDAQ in like seven years. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, there might be a global recession and what's going to happen after Brexit and kind of like, there might be an asteroid, frankly. Yeah. Um, if you sort of sit on day one trying to plan for all that stuff, you're not going to get past day one. No. Whereas if you just keep going in these little increments and try, mm. try to create the best possible company and group and working environment and way of solving the problem that you set out to solve for the people that you set out to solve it at the size you are and where you're about to go you don't kind of implode under 
the pressure and you don't implode under the scale of the financial implications of that. Yeah, Because if I spent too long worrying about what our financial requirements for 18 months' time are, Mm. I'd find it kind of quite hard to get out of bed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, bringing on your first employee, for example, like, that is a huge financial commitment. You only want to do that when you're really, really, really sure... And until then, you, you can be flexible. You can be like water. You can have yeah. free, freelancers. You can you can surf for a really, really long time before anything gets tied down. So that's that's probably the key thing that I'm not letting the pressure get to me about is to feel official in any way. Yeah, we did that for a full six months, and I'm, and I'm glad we did. Yeah. Pre, all of my businesses prior to that, that would have terrified me. Mm. I would have been afraid I wasn't being serious enough, working hard enough, doing all that standard accelerator or incubator, mm. being a proper startup thing. Yeah. But all that stuff, you know, the pitching and the business plan and three-year financials and all that stuff, that's all stuff I'm not bothering with this time around. Makes sense, yeah. Because that doesn't achieve what you're there to do, which is solve a market problem commercially in a way that you're going to get money, you're going to get customer satisfaction, you're going to do it a way that you can afford to because you'll make a profit ultimately, yeah. which means you can do it all again Yeah. at scale. Just get something in front of your users and see how they react to it and keep just find a way to finance it for as long as you possibly can so that you can get as much in front of those users as you possibly can as quickly as possible. Yep. Well, on that very important note, if this was written down, we would be underlining that piece for future reference. Thank you, Danae. Thank you. I wish you every success with Valor and come back and tell us how it goes. <laughs> you have been listening to Vicky Brock and Danae Shell, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or YouTube. And as ever, submit your question on Twitter or at the podcast website. Music